Hey guys, you're listening to the Tasha Loves podcast. So I haven't posted an episode for a while because I've been traveling. Well, actually, I went to a week-long silent meditation retreat in California, and that was wonderful. But I'm super tired right now, and I just got back. I know you're there thinking, Tasha, that doesn't make sense at all. You are supposed to. It's a meditation retreat, right? You're supposed to sit there and do nothing all day long. How can you be tired? But here's the thing: when you are on a meditation retreat, you basically you meditate like for hours and hours, and then you basically, you know, you get up and you <laughs> try to concentrate, and you try to concentrate all day long, and that's a, actually a lot of effort. So after a week, I'm like exhausted. But that's the good kind of exhaustion. It's like you take your brain to the gym almost, right? So. Afterwards, you just feel like、uh, the world is in like technicolor, super vivid, and、uh, your mind is so quiet. There is so much less noise, so much less mind chatter there, and、uh, the world just seems like a much better place. And the time slows down. Anyway,、um, if you don't have a regular meditation practice, I highly recommend because that's.、Uh, To me, one of the most effective、uh, and costless hacks for your health and well-being. But、uh, before we turn this into a health podcast, <laughs> let's look at、uh, what we are going to talk about today. So, before I went on,、uh, before before I went traveling, I wrote this article basically talking about the big problems that I see today in the Web three and crypto space. Not like a problem in sense like、uh, you know you, you necessarily have to be gripey about it, but it's like just challenges both on the technical and adoption level that I see would be、um, if solved would actually lead to the next quantum leap in the mainstream adoption of crypto space. But because of these bottlenecks, because of these constraints, we actually we are sort of on a Sort of in the in the flat tier, I would say, in terms of、uh, in terms of、uh, um, technology adoption journey. Because、uh, if you think of how technologies are being adopted, they don't go in a straight line, right? It's not like the internet has、uh, um, 500 million users today, and then it, it, it goes like five percent linearly every year until it reaches one billion and two billion, and so on and so forth. It usually it goes、uh, in a kind of、uh, Stepwise fashion, it's like climbing a stairs. You sort of there's a breakthrough in technology or in some trigger of adoption, and you kind of jump one staircase, and then things kind of flatten out when that initial trigger or initial、um, momentum sort of dies down. So you kind of get into that flat part of the ladder or stairs, if you will, until something else happens. Some other breakthroughs happen, or another,、um, or some major bottlenecks get resolved and lead to next stage of、uh, innovation and adoption. And that's how I see, like a you know, adoption of a lot of things go, including technology. So, to me, there there are if you if you look at the crypto space today, right? So we had the last、uh, crypto cycle where. People discovered that DeFi and NFT are wonderful, and then you had a、uh, um, major adoption waves, and maybe some like play to earn, move to earn stuff, you or gaming stuff. You had adoption waves、uh, motivated by those things, but those things kind of、uh, 
you know, after a while, that those initial ideas they get like they got played over and over again. And in, at the end, the cycle is basically you see a bunch of copycat projects, right? So, um, so so and then the adoption slows down. And if you look at the space today, I, w- I would say if if everywhere you look, you see a lot of issues and a lot of problems that inevitably happen when you have a survey immature technology, right? And uh, whatever application on application level is also not very, um, not, not in the very mature stage of development of the industry. And then you have all sorts of, uh, you know, scaling issues, your usability issues, and, um, you know, things like that. So all of those things, it becomes like uh, um, cumulative bottlenecks for, for, the, for the next stage adoption. So uh, the way I see it is like projects that are working on those big problems that or those problems, if solved, will actually open the door to the next stage adoption for the industry as a whole. Those would be like some of the most interesting projects to look at, right? So, but in order to, so that that's sort of a framework I'm thinking about this, this issue. So you, we're in a bear market. If you're looking at projects, where do you look? I think one way to think about this, you want to look at projects that are actually solving big problems for the space. So, um, and, and, and also this is a good time to look, right? So, <laughs> because we're in a bear market and the token prices are coming down and uh, associately, it kind of uh, negatively affected uh, evaluations of uh, new projects, right? So if you're looking to do kind of angel VC type of investments, or you know some kind of initial token sales and type of thing. I, I think I think this is this is a good period to look for that type of thing. Um, instead of focusing on liquid tokens, you want to focus maybe more on those, um, you know, uh, kind of initial offering type of projects right now. So. Um, I'm not saying like prices won't go down more. I think it will, <laughs> but uh, you know, compared to a six month ago or twelve month ago, I think it's this. We're in a much better place to actually, you know, scout for new projects. And I personally, I started looking more into you know, angel investment type of uh, type of deals. So while um, you know, last year to the beginning of this year, I was mostly in liquid tokens. Um, Okay, so where are some of the big issues that I'm looking at? So I'm just like gonna briefly go over some of the uh, issues that I talked about in the article. I listed like eight problems, but in fact there are so many of them. But I ran up run out of space because I <laughs> didn't want it to be a very long article. So I listed like eight of them, and uh, I'll just bri- briefly go through some of it, and then we will look at some of the questions associated with the article. Okay, so. Um, First of all, issues related to DeFi. So, I think <laughs> so. We have this a huge innovation that we call DeFi, right? It's a you know a permissionless access of like alternative financial structure that does not uh, rely on, or at least supposedly 
rely much less on any centralized authority. So that's a great thing, and I wrote a lot about you know the advantages, the competitive advantages of DeFi and the business model, how that's different and lead to a faster pace of innovation. It's also force, and that's all well and good. But the truth is, we today, like most of the DeFi products, they're sort of very, very inaccessible to any kind of mainstream audience because they are seriously just crappy. It's like really bad user experience to use. So that that is the, I'll say the most the the, the, the number one problem I see with with uh, DeFi. Um, first of all, with the DEXs, decentralized exchanges, is that you have so many issues um, when you try to execute a transaction. So you, for example, you get, you know, uh, impermanent loss if you try to, uh, pr uh, you know, provide liquidity to the AMM, AMM, AMM pools. And you get very large slippage when you try to execute any kind of, uh, uh, not even size, not even transaction with size, right? Just like a normal transactions, if it's a smaller market cap token, you have problems with with large slippage, and then you get uh, MEV attacks. You get sandwich attacks, and they're like bots trying to look at your transactions in the uh, mempool, which is like kind of a waiting room for transactions to be executed, right? So, um, and then people try to hijack your transactions. Uh, <laughs> so that you get a worse price. And then uh, the also a lot of times the transaction executions are not reliable, but that's, that's more related to the layer one, layer two infrastructure, right? Some, a lot of times, I don't know if you experience this, but I experience this a lot. Both, I would say on almost every chain that I used. Um, maybe some of the newer chains are a little bit better, but you know, f from Ethereum to Solana to Avalanche near <laughs> Polygon, I, I think I've I've had this problem in all of those uh, all on all of those chains. It's just like your transactions get dropped, and wh why does it get dropped? You don't know. You know, there's no error message. It's just like uh, the MetaMask shows you, trans your transaction got dropped. It didn't execute for whatever reason. And you know, if you really you want to capture a kind of a trading opportunity, and that happens, it's super super frustrating, right? So how can you even trust this network <laughs> if you cannot do kind of these simple things correctly, right? So and also there is no transaction control. What I mean is like in traditional centralized exchanges, uh, in like uh, a you know your your stock brokerage account, for example that trading platform, you can execute uh, stop order, limit order, you can delay execution, schedule execution, right? That type of thing. Um, with, with, with DeFi, it's, it's much less uh, possible because you have this blockchain infrastructure which is, which does not allow any kind of asynchronous uh, behavior, right? So you basically, every, everything that you need to get done Related to a transaction, it needs to needs to be done in within a one block of of the of the blockchain. So uh, it all like it needs to be concentrated in a very short time frame. So unless you introduce some kind of you know centralized databases with some uh, some some kind of like a scheduling jobs, uh, uh, otherwise you with blockchain alone with smart contract alone, 
you don't really get to execute any kind of, uh, it's very hard to execute any kind of like an async, asynchronous transaction, asynchronous, uh, uh, you know, operational logic, right? So that just creates uh, a lot of limitation in terms of uh, what decentralized exchanges have been able to do and that has led to, I would say, pretty poor, contribute to the poor UX that we see in the DEX space. And also you do not have any kind of like, uh, well, actually you have some, but it's <laughs> very uh, underdeveloped, uh, I would say indexing and tracking and analytics in the, um, in the token space, in the token universe, the asset universe that can be transacted on chain. So obviously you have like um, DEX screener, you have like, uh, you know, if you go to any kind of DEX like Uniswap or Sushi or any anything, you have like a dashboard, you show your token prices and price history and so on. But they're all like really preliminary, right? So it's much less comprehensive and much less flexible compared to any kind of screening or analytics tool you can find in traditional financial products such as equity market or bond market, right? So um, I can talk more about about this because I saw a question, at least a couple questions like people were asking related to that. So um, that, that, that means it just like any kind of uh, uh, transaction active unless you just do it do it like a token swap once in a while um, then that's no problem but if this is something that you do regularly right as a um, I would say professional investor or as an institutional investor which you know that's where a lot of liquidity is being handled right um, it's just like you you just like very very hard to actually use a DEX right and and also um, talking about analytics, you have the, the, the nice thing about DAXs is like they're permissionless, right? So you can set up like a um, uh, AMM pool for any tokens that you want. You can provide liquidity with uh, however little liquidity you can have to get started with. So you can have, you ha you can have thousands, tens of thousands of uh, tokens, uh, token pools being traded uh, on the platform like Uniswap. The thing is, so you don't know where they are. You don't know, uh, well, you know where they are, but you, you kind of don't because, um, again, the kind of analytical tools kind of lacking, right? And also these liquidity pools, so they're so segmented. You can have a liquidity pool vis-a-vis uh, -vis ETH uh, on Uniswap for this uh, XYZ token. You can have another same pool on another DEX, and then you have the, another pool of uh, XYZ Z token vis-a-vis -vis, uh, USDC and all those like segmented liquidities, um, you know, in the, in the, in the DeFi space, there's no like analytics to tell you <laughs> what, what's, uh, what's actually the liquidity situation, like in a comprehensive manner related to a specific token or, uh, so, so it's kind of very hard to discover, very hard to screen. So that's the number one thing that I see w related to the DAX space is you, you, you don't have uh, all these uh, like basically UI UX issues that we just went over. There's very, very, very lacking, right? So again, the flip side is that, you, you know, if those are the problems that prevents adoption, then you pay attention to projects that aim to solve those problems, right? 
So um, at least, uh, at, at least uh, uh, to, to, to me, you know, I, I think the next stage you, you will see more projects that will com combine some kind of centralized databases or approaches of traditional you know, uh, TradFi platforms with some, some kind of DEX business model to solve some of the scaling problems. So, and, and a second issue I see is really, this is related to the um, money markets on chain, right? So the lending and borrowing, the DeFi banks, um, so to speak. Right now, we all know there's pretty much no other use cases for on-chain lending except for you borrow coins in order to speculate further on, uh, on coins, right? So that is not <laughs> the... That's not a mainstream use case for borrowing lending uh, in, in real life, uh, as we know. But uh, then we're going, so, so for, for DeFi to actually expand to um, more mainstream, you have to somehow incorporate other um, type of use cases for the lending and borrowing, other types of users and other types of distribution channels besides just uh, allowing DGENs to play with tokens online. So, um, so, so, so there, there are projects that are working on these things. Um, so they, they tend to be the kind of a slow moving, relatively slower moving innovations, but um, you know, they, they are out there. Um, and some of them, you know, can be, can be interesting for, for the next, uh, for the next cycle, <laughs> whenever that's going to be. So, and also if you look at the NFT space, um, one issue that I see like on the basic, very fundamental level is that if you, if you want to, if you want to use NFT to represent any kind of asset off chain, you have to have a way to reliably map a NFT to a off-chain asset, a house, a car, or something, right? So there is currently no way to do that. And there's actually not even a reliable way to map an NFT to a asset that is on-chain. Uh, sorry, in, in the asset that is in the digital space, not on-chain. So um, <laughs> this is something like when I did, like for example, when I did the, um, I, I had uh, uh, created an NFT uh, from a distorted diamond, right? So when I did that, a bunch of people were saying, okay, um, how do we know you actually, you know, crushed this diamond and, uh, um, uh, and, 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 and created this NFT um, and you didn't create a second one um, for the same diamond, <laughs> right? So it's very hard for me to prove that, right? So I try to prove it by, you know, documenting with uh, some videos and articles uh, but you you only go f so far in in that regard and that is definitely not something that is scalable right so um there are a lot of chatters in terms of uh, future use cases for nft uh, if you want this space to expand you, you have to have like more use cases and and also more serious use cases serious meaning you have to be able to represent assets that are actually of pretty significant value, right? So, but if you're, in order to do that, you have to make sure these uh, basic technical kinks are being solved. Otherwise, there's no way <laughs> to, 
to actually, uh, you know, for people to entrust a system with assets of serious value, right? So, for example, if you are, if if if, if let's say we want to create a system to use NFTs to represent asset like a real estate asset ownerships, that that's like a really hard to be taken seriously if you actually have to rely on some clunky mechanism of a another centralized authority to kind of uh, uh, guarantee the to guarantee that this NFT is is being pointed to this specific house right so um, so so if you look at uh, you know the traditional um, property ownership uh, structure you have um, you have all these uh, centralized parties. You have all these. Uh, uh, you have like uh, uh, property registries um, run by the government that is hosting the database of all the real estate properties uh, in a specific geographical area, right? And then that serves as a centralized authority, uh, like a centralized uh, source of truth. And uh, if you buy and sell a house, you also need to. Get like a lot of different uh, service uh, providers involved, including you know things like uh, um, you you have to like uh, if you sell a house, for example, you have to go through this closing process, which involves uh, what uh, basically a bunch of uh, lawyers and uh, other professionals that try to verify the ownership history <laughs> of of this property in order to make sure the ownership is actually clear for sale, right? So that entire process, you can say in the traditional financial like asset uh, uh, exchange space is quite costly. So today, does blockchain, does NFT can, 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 can potentially reduce those costs? Right now we can't because you still have these fundamental technology issues that have not been solved. If I actually need a centralized party to, if I need a like authority or I need a government or I need an agency to actually guarantee that this NFT is being associated with that house, how is that, how is it that different from the property registry hosted in the government database, right? So it involves the same level, almost the same level of cost, if not more. So, um, and also this problem is not even solved for digital assets. You know, you can point an NFT to any picture you want. It's just a URL of an image, right? So, like, and, and then some people say, okay, now you have uh, newer blockchains. Like, uh, when I posted this, like, for example, a bunch of uh, people, I uh, think from Cardano community was say, okay, like, uh, you know, you can actually store the image on chain so you can make sure this NFT is actually corresponding to this image, right? But that still doesn't solve the problem because uh, images are, it costs nothing to produce an image, to produce a JPEG, costs nothing, right? I can copy paste a JPEG and create another NFT and I can store both images on chain. What prevent me from doing that? And so um, the thing is, and then people will say, people will tell you, um, okay, you can, you can look at the timestamp. You can look at when is this uh, image being created, and then you can figure out which one is the uh, authentic one, supposedly. But the thing is, then you are requiring, you are put, uh, putting the burden on the 
purchaser or on the buyer to actually figure out if there is a alternative version of the same NFT out there in the universe, right? So you're kind of uh, putting the burden on the user to, in fact, serving um, to, 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 to incur the cost of uh, essentially the same function as a um, title company. <laughs> what does title company do? Search the property ownership history or search any information related to the property to make sure this is one and unique and uh, it's available to actually for sale and you, the owner, actually have all the legal rights to sell this asset and so on and so forth. So, <laughs> like, uh, if I have, uh, if I'm a buyer of a NFT, even just a JPEG on chain, and if I see this in the marketplace, right? How am I gonna? How am I supposed to know that whether there is a identical NFT image out there somewhere else? I don't. It's like uh, very hard for me to know. If I want to know that information, it's not like impossible, right? But it, uh, it's costly. It costs me time and energy and effort in order to do that. So <laughs> that's all the, like uh, the transaction costs, adding onto a um, asset transaction process involving NFT, right? So this is no big deal if we're just talking about JPEGs, which is most of them not worth anything and most of the JPEG NFTs are going to zero anyway. So <laughs> at the end of the day, you know, uh, nobody cares. But the thing is, if we're talking about expanding the use case of NFTs to re represent, again, assets of act actually serious value, then it becomes a problem, right? And it becomes a pretty huge problem because it will, it will imply a huge transaction cost to actually using NFT to represent to tr to, to to represent assets of significant value. Okay, so <laughs> um, so so you know you, so you have fundamental problems like that, and and also um, with w with regard to NFTs, you have right now are the infrastructure the tooling for NFT storage and display and verification, it's all at a very, very beginning stage. So uh, it's very hard to display an NFT. It's very hard to, you know, um, use it for, for anything. And, you know, if uh, you, you want to use it to prove a membership uh, to, in order to get some, you know, uh, membership benefits or you any kind of like, a, associating NFT uh, ownership with any kind of activities. It's kind of clunky process, right? So, but again, we are very, very early. So these are the problems, but the good news is that uh, you, you will have projects that, that, that will strive to solve those problems and that will become your future investment opportunities, right? So, um, and, and, and what, what are some of the other issues that I mentioned in the article? Um, the DAO, we have, like, obviously, um, the blockchains themselves, uh, we have a lot of room to improve in terms of cost and performance. And then, um, and then once, you have, once you have all the blockchain ecosystems, you need cross-chain operations. You need bridges, you need cross-chain messaging protocols. Um, to actually connect them, right? To actually allow people to travel from one chain to another, to allow assets to be sent back and forth. And so all those things like uh, cross-chain traffic, 
<laughs> uh, tra uh, traffic channels uh, need to need to step up, right? And we are still like very early in that as well. So, um, and then uh, going to the application layer, um, we are only at the beginning stage. So I of of kind of uh, any kind of uh, real world integration with with the crypto world. So I wrote about utility tokens before. I, I think they will be big um, in the next uh, in the next cycle. You are already seeing them happening. Um, there is there is a project uh, that I just wrote about uh, called Sweatcoin, which is fascinating. Um, I'm actually probably going to invite their uh, founders uh, to talk about it, <laughs> to talk about how they bootstrap their traction um, on this podcast in the future. So uh, really looking forward to that. Um, but you know, any kind of like a real world, like real world integration, real world use cases, like connecting crypto world with the real economy, we are really only starting in that. So uh, I think uh, a few weeks ago, um, you probably saw the news that uh, the largest e-commerce platform, Mercado Libre, in South America, they are going to have their own utility token, which is essentially a loyalty token, right? So. Um, if you haven't read that news, now you know. <laughs> okay, so you may wonder. Okay, what's uh? It's not a big deal, right? It's a util. It's just a loyalty coin, and businesses have loyalty programs uh, uh, all the time, right? But you know, again, <laughs> there there is a key difference here when this when this becomes a tradable asset on chain, when it has a secondary market liquidity in a open, permissionless, programmable network that really changes the game night and day from a token that is being constrained in a company's database in a walled garden. So if you, you know, if you don't, <laughs> if you haven't, uh, if you don't yet see the significance here, I'll just give you some like potential implications, okay? Like Mercado Libre, for example, they can have they have this utility token, which is going to be an ERC twenty or something. Maybe they will be on a newer chain or have some kind of bridging mechanism to bridge to some faster chains. I hope they do because otherwise it'd be super super slow <laughs> and painful to trade. Um, but anyway, because they are such a huge platform and this token is borderless, if this token gets gets into enough wallets, for example, and, and keep in mind, this is a company that has gazillion users in multiple countries, right? I think they are launching this in Brazil, but they are present in almost all the Latin American countries. So it's going to be spread out. Even 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 if it, they, they don't open to other countries, keep in mind, this is like a a fungible token on chain, right? So anybody can set up a liquidity pool, you can trade it and nobody where you are. So you really, it's very hard to restrict it um, to a specific geography once it becomes a tradable token in a open platform like a public blockchain. So what will happen is if you have enough users, enough people have this token in their wallet, okay? so. It becomes, and, 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 and keep in mind, this is like also a um, loyalty token, meaning you can actually use this to redeem goods and services. Not, I don't think 
Mercado Libre has service, but you know, to re redeem uh, merchandises. Okay, let's say. So, um, so, so that that's a what uh, part of a what gives the token kind of the backing from the real economy, right? So, supposedly, so let let's let's say this essentially so so this essentially becomes the currency of the Mercado Libre economy right so and it's a multinational economy so it, it, eventually where you may end up is if this token gets big enough it becomes a de facto cross country medium of exchange right and you can i can very easily imagine people start transacting using this token in and out of Mercado Libre. And especially given that the monetary policy traditionally in Latin American countries, you know, countries like Argentina, Venezuela, monetary policy is very badly run. So the currency value is very unstable and the trust to trust for local fiat currency is very low. Okay. In that scenario, it's not hard to imagine that if you have a medium of exchange that is cross-country, that's easy to use, that you can actually be used to redeem products on a cross-international like, platform that has a lot of adoption, it will become a competitor to the fiat currencies in the countries where the fiat currency is not so stable. right? So then it becomes... Uh, and, and also it becomes de facto means of uh, cross-border transactions. Even though that token has no intention, it wasn't its goal to become a medium exchange or uh, a, you know, cross-border transaction tool or remittance tool and so on and so forth. And <laughs> you, so do you, you, I, I hope you see the beauty and the magic in this, okay? Uh, the beauty and magic of a open permissionless and programmable um, you know financial network and once a token gets onto this network and once it gets into enough adoption a lot of other things can happen you know like this token can can start to serve a lot of other purposes much beyond its originally uh, original intention right so mercado libre will not will not of course, the, their intention is not to. They're not publishing this, this, uh, uh, issuing this token to compete with national currencies, right? That's not their intention. They just want more customers, more revenues, <laughs> more customer loyalty. But the implications of these uh, tokens on chain, well, once it integrate with real economy, can be huge, right? So, um, and we are only starting to see at at the beginning stage of that okay so that's about the article i will link the article um you can you can go check it out if if you want so uh, let's look at some some of the questions okay um question from michael r the biggest problem problem with most crypto investments is value accrual doesn't flow to token holders so the project can be successful but that is independent of the token success well i <laughs> I, I don't entirely agree. I, I think there, there there is some truth in that. Obviously, you want the token value to be associated with the um, the, the the revenue the, to be tied to the uh, adoption of the project or the revenue of the project, right? 
enough so that make make that token more like a like a semi equity. So I, I think that's the framework of thought that you would use if you see the token as a semi equity. But there can be many types of tokens, including meme tokens, right? Why does Dogecoin have value? Dogecoin has no revenue at all. How do you gauge the performance? The performance <laughs> of the project, right? So um, uh, you you can think of you, there there are different frameworks to to look at the token, and uh, look at different tokens. Um, but you know, I'm I'm not saying I'm opposing to what what he said. I think what he has said is. It's obviously correct in a lot of senses. But I, I do think the biggest problem is actually not enough projects have viable product in the crypto space. I, I think if you actually have um, viable product that people actually want to pay for, <laughs> and you have, a, you have like a genuine adoption that is not driven by reflexive financial cycles, um, Tokenomics is like a second order problem. So once you fix that product market fit problem, tokenomics is like a second order problem that you can you can you can fix later if, if the product starts to get traction. Um, so uh, okay. Next question from Marco. Can you unpack a bit more about Oh, oh, he's he's talking about this uh, NFT one one to one mapping thing. Are you saying the image NFT image itself should also be stored on chain as 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 opposed to a hyperlink to a web web two storage being stored stored off off chain? Well, well, you, well, I already talked about this, right? It's it's not just that. If even if you have a image stored on chain, that still doesn't solve the problem because. It's cheap to create image. It's cheap to copy image. I can create another image and then publish another NFT and store both on chain. And so that does not solve the asset mapping issue, even for the digital assets. Not even to mention the real world assets, right? Um, ne next, next question from Serial. I think I think most of the issues. I think for most of the issues for the DeFi UX issues to be solved, we will need more scalability on the infrastructure side throughputs for for uh, layer ones, for example. Yes, that's that that's right. You you definitely need more performant blockchains or or ledger databases, whatever. If even if they're not blockchains. But still, you know, that some some of the issues is inherent in in the DeFi um, operating model itself. For example, the A AMM model, which is you basically, it's different from the traditional um, you know asset swaps or asset exchanges, which is more of an order book model. With AMMs, you have like two pools of uh, assets, liquidities uh, already sitting there, and you just like exchanging between those two pools of assets, right? So um, that kind of AMMs, you can, it, the, the, the benefit is like, it's always, the liquidity is al already there, right? So you don't, you don't need to uh, wait for, um, you know, uh, matching orders on the other side um, in order to execute an order. 
and also anybody can create those. So it facilitates the creation of liquidity and trading for a long tail of assets that may not be very popular or traded much, right? But the downside is it's really not that scalable. So um, there are projects that are trying to get around that by, you know, again, try to operate DeFi more in a more similar to, to a, in, in the traditional uh, financial markets. For example, there are token exchanges that try to operate from um, RFQ model, uh, request for quote, um, which is in a, instead of using a liquidity pools, you kind of just, when you have the order coming in to buy and sell a token, you kind of query the liquidity providers um, and then, you know, ask them for uh, quotes, uh, for, 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 for price quotes. So that can potentially um, be like cheaper operations and, and solve some of the like, slippage problems. But still, that is limited to um, large tokens that have a lot of volumes. Um, you cannot expect the liquidity providers to large liquidity providers to cover all the tokens, all the long tail assets in the world, right? So, um, <laughs> but but that's but that's just the example of uh, you know um, people are trying to innovate, sort of like. Uh, combining the DeFi business model with more of uh, traditional financial assets, um, exchange, traditional financial exchanges. Okay. So um, next question was Retro R. Interested in your thoughts on whether you would recommend investing in the coins, in, in the tokens of these projects versus looking for ways to invest in equity? where that's possible, noting that it's not possible in many cases. So this is actually a quite an interesting question because I, I, I would say, you know, the boundary between tokens and equities <laughs> is kind of, it's, it's going to becoming, I would say, more and more blurred as time goes on, especially as tokens kind of inherit more values from the um, capture more value added created by the enterprise or a company or project. Uh, what do I mean by that? So let's take the example of, um, let's, let's take the example of a utility token, okay? So <laughs> let's say this company um, has like uh, issued a token in order to bootstrap user growth, in order to give user incentive to use their product. Uh, assuming their product is good, it's sticky, and people actually want to use, so it's a viable product. Okay, so the company is actually growing. So, but with token, you know, if you if you um, read some of the like uh, things I wrote about utility tokens, it's really a mechanism, kind of, uh, it's a growth mechanism for companies to solve their initial fund, like a growth funding problem, to, to fund their growth with token is, instead of funding growth with cash. So, which is cheaper for a company, but they do have to give up their future revenues, right? 
um, in order to compensate uh, the token holders, uh, either in the form of uh, exchanging for future products and services, in the uh, case of liquidity tokens, or in, in, in many cases, they may decide to further increase, to further incentivize the token holders. They may decide to actually share some of the revenues with the token holders or to actually buy back tokens with their future revenues. So then, then you know, if, if, I, if I hold, so if you go, <laughs> like for example, if you um, buy stuff on Mercado Libre and then you earn token while you do that, okay? And then Mercado Libre says, okay, to incentivize you to hold tokens. We're going to allow people to stake tokens and earn some yields, let's say, which is like common practice in the crypto space, right? So where does that yield come from? Um, in the worst case, it comes from new token emissions, but <laughs> nowadays, like uh, uh, investors get like a smarter, so you kind of like you you don't want to do that anymore, right? <laughs> At least you don't want to. If you don't want your yields to come predominantly from new token <laughs> emissions, so you want to tell people, okay, our yields will come from our future revenue. So we will, you know, use use our future revenue to actually buy the token to give them to you as yields. Okay. So then you're es essentially you as a user, as a customer of the company and token holder. You're essentially. Um, like uh, share in, in the company is essentially sharing the revenue with you, sharing its uh, future added uh, added value with you, right? And so, how is that different <laughs> from like uh, a shareholder in in the traditional sense? Because what 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 does it mean to be a shareholder? If you what if you own the shares of a company, what do you actually own? Um, theoretically, you own the you 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 own the claim to the future profits of of the company besides other things like voting and so on and so forth which you don't really get to do much or not that really that relevant to like a smaller investors right but let's say like a, theoretically you own a share of the company's profit streams in the future right and theoretically the company works for its shareholders because the company try to maximize profits and give those profits to you the shareholder right so um and those those uh those uh um the profits uh given to shareholder they may uh manifest in the form of a dividend which is you know, kind of thinking of as another form of yield right or it comes in the form of uh, for example stock buyback you have uh, extra cash flow today. Okay, we will buy back our stocks, and uh, that should shrink the um, circulating supply, the floating supply of the stock, and then they help the price to go up, and you benefit as a shareholder. So all of these different ways is like companies uh, working for its shareholder, right? But now, <laughs> once you have token, what happens? You like uh, before the company reaches the profit before the uh, profit is being calculated, right? Company, like part of the company's uh, income, like a revenue, 
sorry if I use income it's like uh, kind of uh, confusing but like, like the company's sales the revenue the, the cash flow the company gets right that company will use some of that to buy back its tokens <laughs> to or to give yields to token holders so what does that mean you are essentially claiming a share of the company's value added now you can argue how much share goes to start uh, like uh, shareholders how much uh, like what percentage of that value added goes to shareholder what percentage of that value added goes to token holders so that you know it probably depends it probably differs company by company right so but my point is you can start to see that even though the token holders are not called owners of the company even though shareholders are traditionally owners of the company but in like a de facto in a realistic sense the two really start to merge together and they both take a claim take a slice of the value added created by the company eventually okay so um and it, this this uh, this is still like a pretty much it's an evolving space so what this kind of uh governance uh, company re like a uh, governance regime eventually evolve into i don't know right but you can start to see some of these dynamics emerge and this is quite really quite significant okay because the the significance of this okay in the corporate governance sense is like uh you know like in the past 50 years or maybe i don't know past 100 years ever since the concept of company or corporation was created there have been a lot of both theoretical and practical discussion there's sociological and legal discussions in terms of what a company is for what is the purpose of a company right so it, like the 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 majority of the consensus at, at least in the more traditional uh, classic opinion is to say the company's uh, purpose is to serve its shareholders. I've, I'm sure you've heard about this a thousand times, right? So it's kind of a commonly held opinion that company's purpose to share is to serve shareholders, and so. <laughs> but but then that's that's also use that's uh, also the cause <laughs> of a lot of cynicism. Um, in the in the corporate in the business world or in the corporate space that you hear people talk about all oh, the evil corporations and oh all they are after is profit or oh, they're just like after the money or so on and so forth i don't think those are fair i don't think most of those are fair kind of gripes against corporations because it's like literally a corporation's purpose is to share its shareholders it's maximize profits for shareholders okay so it's not to maximize something something for customers or for vendors <laughs> or for wh wh whoever not 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 relevant to the company okay so yes it serves its customers but it's a service its customers and for the purpose of making money all right and then of course you hear a lot of corporations say in their mission statement right we are like we like we emphasize our social responsibility we 
uh, serve our customer, that's our number one priority, and we serve our employees, blah, 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 blah. Most of the time, that's just lip service. <laughs> okay, so because fundamentally, at the end of the day, the corporation's incentive is to create profit for shareholders, that's its fundamental goal. That is embedded in the structure of the corporation. And when you have that kind of structure, people's incentive goes along with it, no matter what they say on paper or in their mission statement. right? And that creates a lot of uh, you know, social incoherence or whatever you call it, uh, you know, cynicism regarding corporations. Now, if... <laughs> how, how, does that, uh, how, how is that related to what we've been talking about? <laughs> It, it's highly related because you, now you think of like if the corporation's uh, mandate, if the value sharing of the corporation goes beyond shareholders now, now it's incorporating its customers or, or its users or whoever interact with the corporation. Like uh, um, th th you, you can be a customer and you, you know, use the platform's product and the platform wants to uh, the company wants to incentivize you to use this product, so it gives you a token. And in order to incentivize you to hold a token, it has to give you some benefit beyond just uh, um, having s uh, some some digits uh, digits in your digital wallet, right? So it has to entice you to say, okay, this token has real value. Where does that real value come from? It comes from our revenues in the future. We're going to buy back the token. We're going to give you yields and so on and so forth. So things we just talked about, right? So. All of those things just basically allow the customers or whatever, whoever contribute values to get the company going, to get the company to grow, to get the company to, to get to the next stage, to generate a profit, will actually share some of the fruit of their contribution. Right? So then you become like, instead of maximizing the values, uh, for shareholders, which is only the shareholders only have claim on the bottom line, which is the profit, right? Now it has to maximize all of the things. It actually might have to maximize the uh, values it can generate for the token holder as, as well, right? So, so then you becomes like a, as you broaden the state, you essentially you broaden the stakeholder base for any corporation, it becomes more and more like not strictly co-ops, but becomes like a much wider, it, it benefits like the value gets distributed to a much wider set of society, right? So, so, so then you, you will see the social relationship, you will see the social discourse and, and the economic discourse regarding corporations will change because of that. Right, so <laughs> it may sound a little bit far-fetching to some of you, but I, I think that's it. They just uh, it's it's just something very real and very tangible and very easy to see. Okay, so um, so but that's a kind of uh, a, a kind of uh, very long discussion. So, but basically, I'm very optimistic to you know to tokenization actually becomes like a positive sum game for society at large in the long run, despite the, um, you know, the, the, the Ponzi's, the, the, the frauds, the, um, <laughs> uh, rug pulls or the whatever going on in the short term, which 
you know, inevitably happens when you have a explosive, explosive, explosively growing like new technology and adoption process. Okay, so um, that's all for today. I will talk to you next time.